First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. First Samuel chapter 5. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon, fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both of the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh towards us, and Dagon, our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of, God, of the God of Israel away. So it was, after they had carried it away, that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So it was, as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us, to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel, and let it go back to its own place, so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there, and the men who did not die were stricken with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months, and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. Some people think of God as far away, too far to hear or care about what's going on in their lives. But God is near. He hears. He cares. He has moved into our neighborhood. And if you know him, he's moved into your heart. He's the God next door. Join us as we encounter him, our God next door, and let's discover together how God's presence means everything for God's people. Would you pray with me? Father, we know and believe that you are the God next door, that you do want to meet with us in this place on this day. But Father, we know also that you are not a God that we can control or manipulate, Father, that you are a holy God, that you are a sovereign God. 
You're a just God. And so, Father, today we pray that you would forgive us when we treat as unholy what is holy, when we come before you irreverently, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would show us today more of who you are, that we would bow before you, that we would worship and adore you, and God, that we might follow you, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, do you turn with me to the passage that my brother just read for us so well, 1 Samuel chapter 5. Uh, the title of the message today is Archaeology, and by that I don't mean archaeology where you go out and dig in the sand and try to find uh, ancient artifacts. I'm not talking about that kind of archaeology, but I'm talking about archaeology, the Ark of the Covenant that looks like this. And like we said last week, the ark was so important in the pages of the Old Testament because it represented the presence of God himself among his people. If you were here with us last week, we studied chapter 4 and we saw that the ark by this point of the story is no longer with God's people because it had been captured by their mortal enemies by the Philistines. And the reason that it had been captured is because the Israelites went and took the ark of God out of the tabernacle in Shiloh where it belonged and they carried it out and set it down on the battlefield because they thought that they could use the ark almost like a, a, a rabbit's foot or a little good luck charm and by bringing the ark of God out to the battlefield they thought they could kind of manipulate God and, and force God to make them win the battle but the Israelites, as we saw last week, learned the hard way that God is not someone that we can control. And so they lost that battle big time, and they also lost the ark itself. It was carried away into the land of the Philistines. But today, as we look at chapters 5 and 6 of 1 Samuel, the Philistines are also going to learn the hard way that the God of Israel is not a God that can be controlled because everywhere that they took the ark, God wreaked absolute havoc on them because God wanted them to know, hey, just because you uh, won that battle, uh, don't start to think even for a moment that that means that your fake gods, your fake idols are more powerful than I am. Because God didn't only want to correct his own people's misconceptions about him. God desires that he would be praised for who he is, even among the nations. And so he wants to correct the misconceptions of the Philistines about him as well. But what we need to realize is that the truth is that people today also have misconceptions about God. That even today we also have some wrong ideas about God, some wrong pictures of God. 
And today we need to let the word of God correct any of those wrong pictures of God that we might have so that the God that we think about and the God that we worship is not a God that we have made up in our own imaginations, but that the God that we worship is the God who actually is, the God that the Bible reveals to us. And so as we walk through uh, these two chapters today, I want us to think about three wrong pictures of God that need to go. And the first wrong picture of God is the idea that God is helpless. And, and that was the danger. I think that was the danger for the Philistines. That, that again, they would think that they actually had defeated God when they defeated God's people and captured his ark. And, and so at first, that is what they actually thought, that the God of Israel was helpless, that he wasn't nearly as powerful as their own gods. But God was about to show them just how wrong they were about that. Again, verse 1 says that the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer, which is where the battle was, and they brought it to the city of Ashdod. I mentioned last time that the Philistines had settled right beside the Israelites right along the coast. And, and we have a picture here that shows you the five uh, major city-states uh, of the Philistines, Gaza and Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. And you can see on the map there that Ashdod is the farthest north of the three Philistine cities that were along the coast. And so that's the first place uh, that the Philistines took the ark to the city of Ashdod. And verse 2 says that they placed the ark in the house of Dagon. Well, Dagon was not a person. Dagon was one of their gods. Like most of the peoples of the world at that time, the Philistines were polytheists. They worshipped many different gods, and Dagon was one of them. In fact, Dagon was their chief and primary deity that they worshipped. Uh, he had a body. The lower body was like a fish, and the upper body was the body of a man. And he was the god of grain or the god of vegetation. And so they bring in the Ark of the Covenant, if you can picture that in your mind. And, and they set the Ark of the Covenant down right beside this fish man god, Dagon, in the house of Dagon, the temple where Dagon was worshipped. And, and they almost set the ark down there as if the God of Israel was a little trophy uh, that Dagon had just won in his little league, right? And so uh, that's kind of what they were doing, right? Just setting the ark on display. Uh, the ark had been captured, and they believed that uh, that meant that their God, Dagon, was victorious. And the God of Israel had been defeated, which meant he must be weaker than the God of Dagon, so the Philistines were pretty happy about this whole situation. But then I love verse 3. Because before they had time to celebrate too much, and before they even had time to finish their coffee the next morning, somebody went into the temple of Dagon, and look what it says in verse 3. It says, There was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And you can just picture that in your mind, can't you? Here is this half fish, half man God who is bowed down literally on his face right in front of the ark of God as if he is prostrate, as if he is bowing in submission to the God of gods, the God of Israel. 
And then at the end of verse 3, and I think the narrator enjoyed writing this part, it says, so they took Dagon and set it in its place again. Did you catch that? Little Dagon had to hit his life alert button because he had fallen and he couldn't get up. So they had to come and literally set him back up on his feet and put him back in his place. What kind of God is that? And so really what the text is telling us, what the story is telling us, it is not the God of Israel who is helpless, but rather it's every other God who is helpless. That every other God, as one person put it, has to be propped up. And yet I'm afraid that sometimes we prop up other gods in our own hearts, even today. And we take the the God of, of money and we prop it up in our hearts and we live as if money were the ultimate thing, the ultimate thing we should be pursuing in life. When we're doing that, we're treating money as a God and we're propping it up in our hearts and we do it with other things as well. We take the God of success and we prop it up and we take the God of relationships, the God of marriage, the God of children, and we prop them up and we treat them as though they were gods. And even though those things are good gifts from God to us, they make good gifts, but they make lousy gods. And every morning when we go in, those gods keep falling down. They don't hold up. They're not able to bear the weight of our souls. They're not able to bear the weight of Godhood for us. And yet we do like the Philistines did. We keep propping them back up time and time again. And the Philistines didn't get the message either. Again, they just propped their little god Dagon back up and went, around, went about their business. And so the next night, God took things to the next level. And so when they came in the following morning, verse 4 says that Dagon had fallen down in front of the ark again. But this time, poor Dagon had been decapitated and dismembered. Right? Humpty Dumpty Dagon had a great fall and nothing was putting him back together again, right? There was his head lopped off, there were his two hands lopped off, and they were laying there on the threshold right at the doorway of the temple. All that was left of him was just the stump, right? Just the torso. God was literally beating the snot out of this statue. And he was showing them and he was showing us that he takes the first commandment very seriously. You shall have no other gods before me. But the Philistines still didn't get the message. Instead, verse 5 says that they just created this little superstition that the narrator says was still in existence in his day, years later, that they just stepped over the threshold when they went into the temple because that's where his head fell and that's where his hands fell. But hopefully we see the point that they didn't stop worshiping him. They kept going into the temple. They just stepped over the threshold to do it. But they kept worshiping this false and impotent God. But in contrast to Dagon's hands that had been cut off, over and over in this passage, you read this phrase. It's there at the beginning of verse 6. It says, but the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them. Now, Dagon had no hands, but the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people. And I want you to catch this. The word that's translated heavy there in our English Bibles is the same Hebrew word that we get the word glory from. 
The word glory means heaviness. The the glory of God had departed from Israel, but the glory of God was not gone. The glory of God was on display in the land of the Philistines because as God's heavy hand came down on them, it was a demonstration of his glory and of his power, his weightiness. The text says that the Lord ravaged the people who lived in Ashdod and struck them with tumors. Now later in chapter 6 and verse 5, We're going to read about how there were also rats who were running around all over the place. I know lovely, right? And that has led some people to believe that this may have been the first instance in recorded history of the bubonic plague that was striking him. That uh, we can't be 100% sure, but if that is the case, then these tumors would have been painful swellings that would have happened under their arms and in their private areas as well and left untreated over half of those who contracted this plague would have died. And so in verse 7, it says they could not take it anymore, the people in the city of Ashdod. And so look at verse 7. It says, when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh towards us and Dagon our God. And so in verse 8, they call a council of all of the leaders of the Philistine cities, and they decide that they're going to send the Ark of the Covenant to another city, to the city of Gath, which was the home of Goliath the giant that we'll read about in a few chapters. And so off the Ark goes to the next city, to the city of, of Gath, but it doesn't go any better for the people in the city of Gath. In fact, there are more tumors on the people. In my version there in verse 9, it says that there were tumors on both the small and the great. The idea is that there were tumors on both the young and the old. That nobody was exempt from what was taking place. And because of where these tumors were, let's just say there was a run on preparation H. Things were not going well for these people. It was miserable for them. And so in verse 10, the people in the city of Gath had finally had enough as well. And so it says they sent the ark to Ekron, the next city up the road. And when I read that, I'm thinking, how much do the people in the city of Gath have to hate the people in the city of Ekron? Right? I mean, I don't know if they sent them a fruitcake the year before. They were just trying to pay them back. But I mean, what did they say to them to try to get them to take the ark? Right? What, what did they say? I mean, you might have heard that uh, the last two cities that this ark was in, things didn't go well. There were some rats, and there was a lot of tumors, and people were dying everywhere, but I'm sure it will go better for you. Here's the ark. But the people of Ekron may have been pagans, but they were not stupid. And so they said, no way, Jose, right? Actually, at the end of verse 10, they said this, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel here to kill us and our people. And so in verse 11, they try to call a preemptive meeting and try to bring all the lords of the Philistines in. And they say to them, hey, you guys have to send this thing back. You need to send the ark back to its own place, back to its own people. We cannot keep it here because we are dropping like flies. And the ver- verse 11 says that even in Ekron, the people were dropping like flies. There was a great destruction. Some people died. Those who didn't die had tumors. People were crying out to heaven. In verse 1 of chapter 6, it says that altogether, the ark was in the land of the Philistines for seven months. Let me tell you, I think that was a long seven months for the Philistine people. But during that time, I also believe that they learned a thing or two about God. 
And they learned very clearly that even though they had defeated Israel, it was not because their gods were stronger than Israel's God. And we'll talk more about this in a moment, but sadly, as a result of all of this, I don't, don't believe that the Philistines converted to the worship of Israel's God alone, but at least they were humbled by God, and they did learn something that we should all know, that our God is not helpless. In fact, he has unrivaled power, and no one can go toe-to-toe with him and survive. He had no trouble beating the Philistines all by himself, and he had no trouble in just a moment bringing the ark back to Israel with no help from the Israelites at all. And, And of course, as Christians reading this story, this should cause us to take courage because it should remind us of how powerful our God really is, that everything and everyone will one day fall down before our God just like Dagon did. And so whatever we are facing, God is powerful enough to overcome it. Maybe there's a lost friend or or family member in your life, and you've just started to believe there's no way that this person can be saved. But there is no one who is beyond the reach of God because our God is not helpless. He has all power. Maybe you've begun to believe that our community can't be changed, that our nation can't be changed, that our culture can't be changed. But listen, it can be changed because our God is not helpless. He's the God of all power. And maybe you think there's an issue or or a situation in your life right now that's that's just too difficult for God. It's it's too complex for God. He's not able to, to work it out. But friend, there's nothing too difficult or too complex for God because our God is not helpless. He has all power. Now, of course, when we pray about these things, we submit them to God's perfect will, a God whose ways are higher than our ways and whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But church, when we pray, let's pray with faith. Let's pray believing that our God is an all-powerful God who is not helpless today. And one word from him is enough to cause everything to change. And even when the Dagons in our life seem so strong and they seem to be winning, one word from our God can make them fall down in an instant. Of course, as we read this story about Dagon falling down before the Lord and almost as if he was submitting himself to God, it is a picture of what needs to happen in every single one of our lives. And so, friend, I want to ask you, has there ever been a time in your life where you have, like Dagon, fallen down before God and admitted your need for God, said, God, I I need you. I need you to forgive me of my sin. I need your son. I need the Lord Jesus Christ in my life. Have you come to that place of humility yet where you've bowed down and admitted your need for the Savior and invited him into your life? And if you haven't, I hope that you will today because our God is not helpless. And one day the Bible says that we will all stand before this God on the day of judgment. That is the first wrong picture of God that we need need to get rid of, this idea that God is helpless. A second wrong picture of God that needs to go is the idea that God is mute, 
that he doesn't speak, that he never speaks, and that we're left to just wonder and figure out on our own what God is trying to say to us. But nothing could be farther from the truth. God even speaks to the Philistines, pagan unbelievers in this story, and he uses a very unlikely mouthpiece in order to do it. And that's where we pick up the story there in chapter 6. By now, again, they've realized the ark is too dangerous for us to keep. They've already decided they want to send the ark back to Israel, but they don't know how to send the ark back to Israel without more people dying. And so in verse 2, they call for their priests, their soothsayers, and they have them come and they ask them, how can we send the ark back to Israel in a safe way, in a way that doesn't cause any more of us to die? And so let's pick it up there in verse 3 of chapter 6. So they said, the soothsayers said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. And then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. And then they said, What is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistine, for the, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land. And you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. And why then do you harden your hearts, as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he did mighty things among them? And did not let them depart that they might depart. Now therefore make a new cart. Take two milk cows which have never been yoked. And hitch the cows to the cart. And take their calves home away from them. And then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart. Put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. And then send it away and let it go. And watch. And if it goes up the road to its own territory to Beth Shemesh. Then he has done this great evil, but if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us, that it happened to us by chance. And then the men did so. They took two milk cows, hitched them to the cart, shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and images of their tumors. And then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left, and the Lord's of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. And so up in verse 3, these priests, these soothsayers, basically say, don't send back the ark empty-handed. Now we need to send something along with the ark as a trespass offering or a guilt offering because they realized that they had offended God. And they figured we better send something back to appease him and and maybe he will uh, take it easy on us. And so in essence, they were sending, you know, an I'm sorry gift. I don't know what you send when you send an I'm sorry gift to someone that you've offended. Maybe you, you know, send uh, some flowers or or maybe a Starbucks card with a handwritten note. I'm not sure. But, but this is where, from our perspective, the story gets a little weird. Because what did they send? It says that they sent five golden tumors and five golden rats. Now, if you have not read this story before, I'm thinking that, that was, you didn't see that one coming. Right? The rat and tumor story. But yet here it is. Now, for, for one thing, they understood that their offering to God needed to be costly. And so that's why they made their offerings out of gold. That part makes sense. That they gave five of them, five each of the tumors and rats, because of their five cities. This was a national 
calamity, something that their nation all bore the guilt of and had felt the consequences of. And so that's why they picked the number five. But the part that maybe is strangest to us is the fact that they uh, made gold images of their own tumors and gold images of rats. And why did they do that? Well, they were trying to represent with their offering what had been happening to them. The fact that these tumors and rats had been ravaging the land. And so by making their golden uh, sacrifices and the shape of the tumors and rats, they were basically acknowledging to God, we know that what has happened to us has happened to us because of you. And also, of course, they were asking the God of Israel to take those tumors and those rats away. And before we move on, I do just want to point out that the question that the Philistines asked their leaders in verse 4, what is the trespass offering that we shall return to him? That question, what offering can we give to God for our sin? If you think about it, that really is the question that the whole Bible is trying to answer. Because what the Bible tells us is just like the Philistines, we are all sinners. We have all trespassed against God, and we've trespassed against a holy God, a holy God who in his holiness and in his justice pours out his wrath upon sin. That is the the, the response, the right response of a holy God towards unholy people. And, And so the question that we should be asking, even if we're not asking, is how can I, as a sinful man, as somebody who has trespassed against God, how can I stand in the presence of a holy God without him pouring out his wrath on my life? What offering can I give to him that will make up for my sin? What offering can I give to God that will take away his wrath from me? That's the question that the Bible is answering. And the answer that the Bible gives is that it isn't golden tumors and golden rats that takes it away. It also isn't even the blood of bulls and goats and animal sacrifices that take his wrath away. It's only the blood of the precious Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. That is the offering. That's the only offering that takes our guilt away. Because of his wrath being poured out on his son in our place is the only reason that I, as a sinful man, can stand in the presence of God and not have his wrath poured out on me. It's because of that sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice that I have made or that you have made. It's a sacrifice that Jesus has already made on our behalf. But we have to receive that sacrifice. We have to receive the Lord Jesus into our life in order for that sacrifice to be applied to us. Back in our story in verse 7, the Philistine priests came up with this test because they were trying to figure out with 100% certainty, they wanted to know, is everything that happened to us really because the God of Israel did this to us? Or maybe, you know, was it all just a coincidence? And they should have probably already figured that out by now, but they were trying to make doubly sure. And so they concocted this plan to try to test that. And so what they did is they built this, this cart, a new cart, and they put the Ark of the Covenant on that cart, and they put their little chest next to it that had their five golden tumors and five golden rats in it. And then they hitched up cows to that cart, cows that had never pulled anything before, and, and they set them on the road that leads up to the city called Beth Shemesh, which is just inside the border of Israel. Basically, they were trying to send the Ark back to Israel. 
But they did everything in their power to make it unlikely that these cows would take the ark back to Israel. First of all, they used cows that had never pulled anything before, never been trained. And so the most likely outcome was just the cows would just stand there and do nothing. But then they also picked cows that had just had calves, and they took their calves away from them. You don't have to be a farmer to know that cows and newborn calves stay pretty tight together. And so they took their calves away from them, and they pinned them back up at home in the opposite direction. And so every instinct, every God-given instinct inside these mother cows would be to go back that way to where their calves were, not to go the opposite direction to Israel. So almost like Elijah did on the top of Mount Carmel, where he poured water all over the offering, all over the wood, and then said, now, God, would you like this wet wood on fire? Almost made it even more difficult for the Lord God, to do this miracle and to prove himself. That's almost what these Philistines were doing. And yet, of course, nothing is too difficult for the Lord. And so we read what happened in verse 12. The cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went and did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. And the lords of the Philistine went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. So again, even though every instinct inside these cows was to go that way, they went this way towards Israel, even though they were lowing and mooing as they went after their cows, who their calves who were left behind them. And and you know what? Just like God spoke through a donkey in the book of Numbers, here he was speaking through these cows, wasn't he? And if old MacDonald will forgive me, the fact that these cows did a moo-moo there instead of a moo-moo here was God speaking through those cows. With every moo of those cows, God was speaking. And what was he saying? He was saying, yes, I am the one who did all of those things in all of your cities. And I did it for a reason. I did it so that you would know that I am the one true and living God. He said, I did it because I want you to know that not only do the Israelites need a Savior, but you need a Savior too. And I'm the only Savior who can be found. And by the way, all of those little gods that you keep propping up are not really gods at all. That's why he did it. That's what God was saying. The question is, were the Philistines listening? Did they get the message? And I think they got part of the message after they watched the cows pull that ark away from their calves and up to the land of Israel. I think when they turned around and walked back home, they got part of the message. They understood that it was indeed God who had done all of those things to them. But I don't think they got the whole message. And I don't think they got the whole message because they didn't stop worshiping their false gods. And they didn't start worshiping the God of Israel alone. I think that many of them just said, well, you know, I'm glad that that was over. At least that's over now. And I think they just went back to their old ways. They weren't listening. The, the question is for us, are, are we listening? Are we listening to what God is saying? Because God is not mute today either. He is speaking, and he's speaking to us through our word, his word, and he's speaking to us through circumstances that happen in our life, and he's trying to get the attention of our hearts to turn our hearts back to him. But so many times, I don't think we're really interested in hearing what our God is saying. You know, back in verse 5, at the end of that verse, The Philistine soothsayers say this. They say, you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you and from your God 
and from your lands. They were saying, you know, if you'll just do this, if you'll just send this offering, these golden rats and these golden tumors back to the God of Israel, maybe he'll ease up. Right? Maybe he'll take his hand off of you, off your gods, off your land. Maybe things will start to go better. And I think a lot of times that's really all we want God to do. You know, we find ourselves in a bad situation, in a bad circumstance. God is trying to speak to us through that. He's trying to get our attention. He's trying to turn our hearts back to him. And and, and so we're in that terrible situation. And so maybe we cry out to God for a little bit. Maybe we're even willing to make a few changes for a little bit. You know, to try to appease God in, in, in some way. But really all we want is for God to get us out of that bad situation. And as soon as God does that, as soon as in his mercy he gets us out of that bad situation, we go right back to living the way we were. We go right back to Dagon's temple and we prop up our gods all over again. And sometimes it's so easy to do that, to only cry out to the Lord when we really feel like we need something, to only turn to him temporarily, only to turn to him superficially until the crisis is averted. And maybe as you look back at your life, that's been the pattern and the cycle of your life. But really, there's never been a time in your life where you didn't just want a quick fix, where you really were ready to let it all go and follow God with your whole life. And that is what Jesus Christ demands. He says, if anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Friend, have you ever ever done that? Maybe God is speaking to you today and that's what he's saying. He's calling you to surrender to him, not for a day or a week or a month, but to surrender to his lordship in your life forever. We've looked at two of the wrong pictures of God that we need to let go of, this idea that God is helpless, this idea that God is mute, but there's one more wrong picture of God that needs to go, and it's the idea that God is safe, that God is safe. Let's pick up the story where we left off in verse 13 and see what happens next. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, and they rejoiced to see it. And then the cart came into the field of Joshua Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there. So they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was in it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. And then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. And these are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden rats, according to the numbers of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel on which they set the ark of the Lord. Which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh? So here are the people of this village of Beth Shemesh and Israel. And we are told that it is harvest time. It's May or June. And so they are out in their fields working when they look up and lift up their eyes and they see the ark of God coming around the corner. 
coming into their territory. Can you imagine the joy in their hearts at seeing the ark of God that had been captured seven months ago and had been in the land of the Philistines, and here it is being pulled by cows on a cart and coming on its own back into the land of Israel. So they stop their work, and and a spontaneous little worship service erupts. And as the reader, you think, you know, now everything's going to go well. Right? I mean, at this point, this story is going to end happily ever after. Now the ark of God is back with the people of God, and all is well that ends well. But actually, this story doesn't end well at all. And this story doesn't end well at all because the people in this village of Beth Shemesh end up treating the ark just as irreverently as the Philistine pagans did. And the first couple of things they do, you might not notice so much, but the text says that they sacrifice the cows that brought the ark back when the book of Leviticus says that they were only supposed to sacrifice a bull and not a cow. And then instead of covering up the ark, which Numbers chapter 4 specifies in great detail, instead they took the ark of the covenant and they set it up on this stone almost as if it was a carnival amusement. For people to come by and to look at and to gaze at. And all of this was against the word of God. And then they do something that was even worse than both of those things. Look with me at verse 19. Then he, God, struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. And then the men of Kirjath Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And so it was that the ark remained in Kirjath Jerim a long time, and it was there twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Well, as I said a moment ago, there were laws in the Old Testament about the ark and how it was to be covered and who was able to look upon it. And really, only Aaron and his sons were allowed to even look at the outside of the ark. And yet the, ben, the men of Beth Shemesh had the audacity to lift up the ark and to look inside the ark. And because of that, God did what he already said he was going to do in his law. And some of them died. In my version, it says 50,070 men. The ESV Bible that some of you may have reads 70 men. I think that is the correct number, 70 men, based on some of the Hebrew manuscripts. But, but think about that. 70 men in this little village who died because they dared to open the Ark of the Covenant. And so it wasn't just the pagan men, the Philistine men, who were held guilty for their irreverence of the Ark. It was also God's people who were held guilty for their irreverence of the ark. God is impartial. You see, when we read earlier about Dagon falling down before the ark, it's almost humorous to us because we're reading about God showing his power to those who are outside the covenant. But this story about what God does in Beth Shemesh should wake us up a little bit because this happened to God's people. And it just reminds us what a weighty thing it is to have God's presence here. 
And under the new covenant, God's presence isn't just among us. God's presence lives within us in the person of the Holy Spirit. God is our Savior, but God is not safe. He is not domesticated. And we cannot control him. We can only bow down before him in worship and in wonder. And so because they failed to treat the ark with the reverence that it was due, now it was the Israelites, now it was the people of Beth Shemesh who were ready to send the ark off to some other place. And so they send it to this town called Kirjath-Jerim. And that's where the ark would stay on the fringes of Israel under the care of a man named Eleazar for 20 years until David would come, King David, and carry the ark back or carry it to Jerusalem for the first time. I really believe the key question in this story is the question that the men of Beth Shemesh ask in verse 20 of chapter 6. Look at that with me. They said this, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? What were they saying? They were saying God is not safe for us. God, God is too holy. As one person put it, his holiness is almost nuclear. Who can stand before him? Dagon couldn't stand before him. The Philistines couldn't stand before him. Even the Israelites could not stand before him. That's what they were thinking. Nobody is safe around this God. But I think what we have done in the American church today is we have created a God that everybody is safe around. We, we have created a God that you don't have to fear because he's harmless. Because he's more like a big Santa Claus in the sky and he only exists to give people stuff and he just wants everybody to have a good life and he wants that so badly that he would never judge any of us for any of the things that we would ever do and so we certainly don't need to feel guilty about anything because guilt is just a negative emotion anyway and since God doesn't care, why are we feeling guilty anyway? And so this is the God that we have created, a God who is laid back, a God who is casual, a God who plays it cool, a God from whom we have nothing to fear. But I think what we realize in this story is that the God that we have created is not who God is at all. God is not helpless. He is all-powerful. He is not mute. He has told us what he expects, and he has told us that none of us have met his expectations. And he is not safe. He is holy, and he is just. And so here is a question that I want to ask you. Is it possible... Is it possible that the laid-back God that you have been worshiping, a God who does not care that much about the wrong things that you do, doesn't actually exist? Is it possible that we have created a God who is laid-back enough that we don't need to repent of our sin? But yet we read this question, who can stand before this holy God? And what's the implied answer? The implied answer is nobody. That's what they were saying. Nobody can stand before this holy God. And actually, they're correct. Because none of us on our own can stand before this holy God. Because what Romans 6.23 says, the very beginning of that verse, is so true. The wages of sin is death. That we have all sinned against our holy God and the wages of that sin is death, eternal separation from God. And that is what we will get if we try to stand before God on our own. But friends, there is good news. 
And the good news is there is one person who is qualified to stand before God on his own, and that one person is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came to earth and who died on the cross for all of our sin and paid for it in full and rose again on the third day, and now he always lives to make intercession for us. And the reason why I can have confidence that right now I am accepted before God, right now I can stand before God, right now I can come into God's very throne room on my knees in prayer is because Jesus Christ stands in my place. The reason why I have confidence that if I were to die tomorrow, that I would be accepted into the very presence of God is not because of an offering that I have brought, but it's because of the offering that he has already given. Jesus can stand before this holy God. And if Jesus Christ lives inside of you, then so can you. And that's why Romans 6.23 doesn't end with the wages of sin is death. What is the last part of that verse? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, sometimes when there's a natural disaster or a shooting or anything, it could be a hurricane, a tornado, on, on social media, on Facebook, you'll see people that are in that area where that disaster, that shooting happened. And you'll see them on their Facebook page, they'll, they'll mark themselves safe. Have you ever seen that? I'm marked safe in this city where this disaster happened. I'm safe. It, di- it didn't happen to me. I'm safe. They want to let their family and their friends know that they're marked safe. What we've seen today is that God is good, but God is not safe. And if the judgment of God were to come today, if you were to stand before God today, would you be marked safe? Would you be able to say, I've been marked safe because I've been marked with the blood of Jesus Christ? And if not, you can be marked safe forever right now. I want to invite you to stand as we sing together. And I want to invite you as we sing this song to come, to respond to whatever God is saying to your heart. I'll be here at the front. Other pastors are here. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you about how you can be marked safe through a relationship with Jesus Christ. You come right now. God's speaking to your heart.